Hey everyone, welcome to Meat Sports Alcohol for Monday, May 10th. I'm Dylan. I'm JMO. Uh, we have an awesome show for you today. First, we sit down with Charles Boehm. He's a national writer at MLSsoccer.com, freelance journalist at ProSoccer USA, SoccerWire.com, and more. Uh, we have a really interesting conversation with him about Champions League, Super League, um, and he's just an insanely knowledgeable guy. Uh, super fun interview, especially if you want to learn some more about uh, the history of uh, of soccer and just kind of what led up to the Super League. Yeah, he was incredibly fascinating. He said more cool, interesting things in the time that we spoke to him than I have said together in my entire life, I'd yeah. say. He was yeah. very, very interesting. Uh, we then devolved from there. <laughs> from the fascinating interview to some ice cold takes of the week uh we talk about baseball i give some i give myself some praise for my financial ingenuity uh <laughs> and we have some other pretty pretty funny ones so stick around for that and take it away chat we now welcome on charles bohm he's a national writer at mlssoccer.com freelance journalist at pro soccer usa soccerwire.com and more uh, we'll be talking a bit about the Champions League, recapping the semis, looking forward to the Champions League final. And we'll also be discussing kind of this, uh, the fallout from the whole Super League mess. So thanks so much for joining us, Charles. Really excited to talk with you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Great. Well, I'll just start off. Admittedly, uh, I'm not the most up to date on soccer. Dylan definitely is more than myself. Uh, so I just wanted to hear from you, like as someone who hasn't, watched every single game like what are the key storylines i need to know heading into the champions league final uh any like background info or things i should be paying attention to yeah so uh i use this term drinking from the fire hose uh in this business a lot because there's always a soccer game happening especially post-covid so so <laughs> you can be forgiven <laughs> there's literally competitions constantly um yeah, so it's been uh, it's been a really uh, even by the standards of top level European soccer, um, it's been an insane kind of weird uh, spring so far with sort of lots of drama on the field uh, and off the field. Um, so I want to make sure we go in the right direction. So guide me back onto it if you need to. But um, the of course the Champions League is the summit. It's the pinnacle of the sport, probably the highest level and uh, of play and highest concentration of elite players in the world. Uh, in these, uh, especially these these four um, semifinal uh, matches that we've been uh, tre treated to, so um, and it's uh, you know I guess on on paper you would say hey the rich guys are are in the final again right the, the two of the richest teams from the richest league in the world in, ten, in terms of the English Premier League and and uh, Chelsea and Man City uh, have reached the final well big surprise but but the way they got there um, was really fascinating um, a, a lot of um, very sort of taught frenetic uh dramatic matches and uh and of course here in the u.s you know I th i'm i'm really uh pleased with the coverage that we're getting on cbs uh, a newcomer to the sport who's really seems to have embraced it and has, has captured these moments well and of course we've got uh our particular uh angles here 
Uh, we have an American on either on both of these two finalists. Um, so Zach Steffen is a back back of a goalkeeper for Man City, um, and and Christian Pulisic, who really sort of grabbed the the spotlight uh, in ways that even even Christian Pulisic fans maybe didn't expect uh, or were blown away by in the semifinals. And so we know now that for the uh, the first time ever, we're we're guaranteed a, a an American winner of the Champions League, which is. Um, Maybe a little bit of a, a side note, but it's still a pretty cool um, metric to sort of kind of uh, a signpost in terms of this slow, agonizing, um, steady climb uh, of American players into the, the world's biggest teams and, and biggest competitions and moments. And then, of course, simultaneously, almost uh, alongside it, we have this um, like stranger than fiction kind of situation with the European Super League, which is a very old idea. This, this is an idea that in general concept dates back to, gosh, almost to the start of the modern Champions League as we know it, you know, sort of in the, in the 90s, early 90s. And, um, and it's been kind of bandied about. It's mostly been used as leverage, just in sort of um, general boogeyman idea that, um, that everyone's been afraid of in terms of sort of disrupting the balance uh, of European soccer, right? That, that the rich would eventually um, get tired of the status quo, even though they are the, they are big beneficiaries from it. Um, but there's always been this idea of this uh, a denser concentration of elite teams to create more of the matches that everybody in the world wants to watch, right? If you guys saw any of uh, those semifinals, right? To have Man City um, versus PSG and then Chelsea and Real Madrid, these are the games that people people pay to watch. These are the games that people build their lives around. I mean, millions, if not billions of people around the world uh, are living and dying on those results. So, of course, the um, the money people, and I, should, I mean, unfortunately, they're, or maybe for better or worse, they're mostly men. So we can say money men in most situations um, because it's overwhelmingly, um, you know, rich guys uh, want to have more of those games. They want to make more money off those games. They want to uh, make themselves more... Um, you know, I guess dominate even more the game because they feel that that that, that is what their levels of talent and stardom and wealth deserve. So, um, so this, the so Super League was as a kind of a, a general idea that's kind of come and gone in these various forms, uh, and then finally out of the blue, with very poor planning, very little warning, um, this group of European elite clubs to sort of um, they the, the the word leaked that they had been sort of crafting this thing. And in a 48 to 72 hour period, it went from this crazy gossip column, sort of uh, vague idea of something happening to, wow, this is really happening. Um, wow, people really hate this idea. Uh, oh my gosh, they've done this terribly. And now they're running away from it all in the course of three days, right? And the, the fallout is still happening uh, up to this moment because um, the uh, UEFA, the, the governing body of the sport in Europe, is determined to not only to sort of stop this from happening, but they want to punish anybody who's involved in it, demand public contrition, and try and set up as many guarantees and agreements as possible that prevent it from ever being conceived of in any way and sort of sort of herd these, these renegades uh, back into the flock. So it's been a really, really fascinating spring. Yeah. Well, I'd say uh, I feel pretty good about uh our questions that we prepared because you kind of basically hit all those notes right there. That was a very, <laughs> very succinct, very well done uh, summary of everything that's going on right now. Um, so I kind of, you know, there's a lot that you just touched on. Um, one of the things with the super league, the we fire hose, like I said, you know, <laughs> yeah. One, before we get into the, the champions league final, just a little bit more on the super league. Um, 
you kind of mentioned like the really quick rise and fall of the league, the between 48 and 72 hours, it went from this kind of half fleshed out idea to this is really happening to this isn't happening anymore. Do you, what are your thoughts on like, was this just an extremely poorly planned like PR rollout? Uh, did the owners truly not expect this kind of backlash? Like, what do you, what do you see happen? Because it, it's shocking to think that these brilliant, you know, super rich billionaires could poorly execute something as badly as, as they did, you know? That's what I kind of kept marveling at, um, both sort of in my internal monologue and then in, in conversations and, and, and processing and then in, in sort of um, talking to people about it on Twitter and stuff. Like these are these are sort of serial winners, both on organizational and individual levels. Right. Um, and the amount of wealth and power uh, and connections that, that these that these clubs and their chief executives and owners have is enormous. And so I'm, I'm still in disbelief that they hashed this up so badly. And I think what you had was, I mean, we'll, we'll probably be dis, uh, dissecting this sort of like Enron style, right? Or whatever, like for, for years, because um, the, the sort of best, I guess, short version of what I, what I surmise happened, it was that you have this gathering of alphas, right? Who are, um, even if you just look at the Premier League, right? It was the quote unquote big six. But even within that group, so that you know, you see what they did. They they clearly see themselves as so far ahead of of most or all of their domestic competition that they just have to go and and set up their own thing, right? Um, that's worthy of their their level. Um, and yet, there's also intense rivalry and dislike, right? So so you have um, you know the the other clubs. There's the old money and the new money. Um, there's the sort of foreign owned clubs versus those that still have you know ownership in their domestic country. Then there's the, the, the people that want to make money uh, or at least support themselves. Like, so for example, the, the ownership model of the Cronkies and the, the Glazers at Arsenal and Man United is, is sort of their custodians and also sort of, uh, for lack of a better term, kind of leeches or remoras on the club itself. And then you have the uh, sport washing vehicles, the sort of sovereign wealth funds of, of Qatar and, and the Emirates and stuff who are, who are spending enormous amounts of money without expectation of a long-term or short-term financial recompense or, or balancing, right? So they're, they are getting soft power from, from their investments. And so you have all these different types of rich people and privileged people um, and, and who are sort of used to competing. And now they're going to sort of do this, um, you know, I, I don't know, weird justice league concept. And they, there wasn't, there weren't enough people that were ready to, to uh, embrace the idea publicly go front and center and argue the case um, both publicly and privately to the people that needed to be won over. Um, there weren't, and there wasn't, um, I, I think that there was, as we see, we've learned now with some of these interviews with um, some of the uh, in, investor angel types and wall street types who bankrolled this, right. Who, who basically gave them almost like a blank check. I mean, that said, we'll, we will financially, um, you know, underwrite this to the tune of billions of dollars without even knowing the most basic things about the competitive structure that they were uh, tangling with or, or possibly demolishing in the views of some, right. Um, but just saw that there was, there was an opportunity and just saw enough to go with it. Right. And so then I just think you had this perfect storm building up of one person after another who um, wasn't ready, maybe um, didn't think every angle through like you would want and need to in a, in a, an undertaking of this magnitude. Uh, and then, 
once the, um, because there's so many um, people involved and so many potential leaks and so many uh, connected media outlets around all these different countries, once things start to leak, then you feel like you have to get out in front of it, right? And not, you know, not lose the momentum. And then that leads you to make even more rash decisions and rush even more. Um, and, uh, and again, like the, the, there's, there's power and then there's, um, and then there is influence, right? And so a lot of these rich people are accustomed to, to exercising both in it without ever going in the public eye, right? And we're talking about people who, even the Americans who you, you would, you could, you might sort of um, speculate are more comfortable in front of cameras or more, more in a more transparent environment. Stan Kroenke never does interviews. He simply doesn't do interviews. The Glazers don't do interviews. I mean, they don't, not only do they not want to, they don't see any benefit from any form of transparency whatsoever. They uh, see only bad things. And I think there's probably also enormous helpings of arrogance that go into it too, right? I mean, if you watch like, there are these, I don't think, I don't think the Glazer family who also own the Tampa Bay Buccaneers um, and who sort of get this generally sort of, I think, obsequious treatment from like the NFL media or, or wherever they go. And so they were getting like, ambushed by European reporters in the parking lots of their whatever, you know, fancy place there, whatever, and walking to their car and having to sort of look even worse by not answering questions and pretending that these, this woman with the microphone uh, following them through a parking lot isn't there. And it was just like every element um, and just they, they needed someone or they need ideally an executive or owner from every single club involved to be ready to stand in front of a camera or a bunch of cameras and say, here's what we're doing and why, and here's why we believe in it. And so, and like, it never got fully baked to, to that point. And it's just, um, it's just flabbergasting. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Well, it's, and it's crazy. Um, you mentioned the, uh, the JP Morgan uh, investment, like Jamie Dimon had that interview where he was basically like, oh yeah, we didn't realize that fans would get so mad about it. And so that's basically saying we bankrolled, you know, billions of dollars into this investment and either we, didn't do our research or were flat out lying to you. Like I just, From it the seems crazy. brought you the subprime mortgage price. Yeah. Like, come we're on. Gonna, we're going to reinvent <laughs> soccer in Europe. Right. Yeah. Come I think on. the phrase he used was, um, there's a lot of fandom or something. Else yeah. Like it's like, no shit. <laughs> Most popular sport in the world has a lot of fans. Yeah. Um, and, and again, I think, I still think, um, you know, he showed, he was almost like a stereotypically, a, a ludicrously um, stereotypical American, right? Yeah. To, to yeah. have no idea of this like layers, century plus of history and meaning and context um, that he's walking out to, on top of just by, just by getting involved at all. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Did you, do you kind of see um, like, did you see like a bit of a hierarchy in the owners that were pushing for this? And did you like, see any as kind of being the driving forces behind it. I know there's some reports that like, you know, kind of ironically now that they're in the finals, but like Man City and Chelsea being clubs that have come from, you know, the down below, they haven't been a historically great franchise. They had some apprehensions towards doing the Super League. They were the first ones to drop out. Like, did you see there, you know, was it kind of like a Cronky and Glazer, like an Americanized thing? Um, I know Fiorentino Perez of Real Madrid was also pushing very hard. Did you see like one guy as kind of being the leader among these leaders? Um, or was it just kind of this weird half-baked idea that then a lot of people got cold feet at the same time? 
Well, there's a there's a pre-established narrative that that was very easy to shoehorn this uh, saga into, which is um, these rich people with no connection to our communities that our clubs have grown out of, mostly Americans. It's very easy to demonize Americans, right? Yeah. These these dumb, greedy Americans that don't understand soccer and they don't understand culture and community and and and, and the, the whole context of our of our passion, and they come in here with their money and they think they can just commercialize this like they do everything else. And they wanted to NFLize exactly European soccer. I think that's a little um, that's that's a that taps into some some very deep um, stereotypes and and generalizations that um, probably got a lot of fans fired up or allowed the sort of outrage to, to, to mushroom. Um, but I think that's a, that's a pat and, and, and vague or, you know, um, generalized and, and, and widely incorrect because um, the, so yeah, so there, there's, as best we can tell, and I've, I've taken um, a lot of the insidery kind of ITK reporting on this with a grain of salt because there was a lot of CYA happening, right? So um, Man City, and Chelsea, there was reporting that suggested that these teams were sort of given like 48 hours or 24 hours or something to say you're in or you're out. And they find out, wow, so five other biggest, richest clubs in, in the domestic scene right now are doing this. I've got to do this to not miss the boat, right? Um, that's kind of, and I think there was some version of that from Arsenal people too. And it's like, kind of like, uh, you know, that's that speaks even worse of you possibly that, that you allowed yourself to get dragged along or that you got onto this boat, not knowing exactly what it was or where it was going. Um, but again, there's, there is because our American sporting infrastructure and the roots of it, which goes back, I mean, I've, I've recommended everyone always, but especially in this episode to go read a book called offsides uh, soccer and American exceptionalism about why America's sporting landscape is so fundamentally different. And it goes all the way back to like the industrial revolution and when sports started to become a, a big part of daily life and get professionalized, like at the turn of the 20th century and how, how our, like what we sort of put that energy into um, college sports and baseball to, you know, kind of way, whereas soccer was like, you know, these industrial, these, these rural people moving to, to cities to work in factories now and they're uprooted. And now the soccer team becomes their, their place, their sense of place and, and identification, and everything. So, um, so not to get too sidetracked, like there's that whole thing happening, this whole historical um, thing. And I think um, we, because our, because our sports are all, you know, tend to be franchise model, um, a lot of collectivism, really so sporting socialism, right? And it's so incredible. It remains marvelous to me that that you know the the, the norm in most of these European societies is some level of socialism and social fabric and safety net. And yet in sports, they are absolutely, um, you know, capitalist devil take the hindmost, whatever. Right. And, and, and then we are the opposite here. Um, and I, I don't, and I, I've gotten to the point now where I don't try not to look at that, try to d- detach that from these emotional sort of value ethical judgments where possible. Right. There are certainly benefits t- to both ways, but anybody, um, anybody who wades into that world, um, even a global super club like Manchester United, right, that has sort of grown so enormous out of its um, out of its city neighborhood roots, you're still dealing with that um, self image, right? And the, the 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 way that these people come to their club and their support, um, even though we're now in a globalized era where there's hundreds of millions of people 
on different continents, right. Who, who really are kind of NFL style fans. And if we're being honest in a lot of ways and in the way that they're able to access the club, the way, the way they get to support a certain club. Um, and a lot of Europeans, I think have their local club that they grew up with, or maybe that their mom or dad passed on to them. And then they have their, their, their super club that they, that they're also watching because they naturally develop that interest in the big competitions, but you, you can't go in with ignorance or, or, any kind of unawareness of the roots and you have to pay tribute. I mean, there's this funny thing that happens where owners are, when you take control of a club, and especially if you're not from the community or much less the country, you're expected to kind of come in and genuflect to the fans and their traditions implicitly or actively. Right. And there's, there's things you say, there's terms you use. And so, I mean, the minute an, an American owner lets the word franchise slip out of his or her mouth about their European club, you're just, it's like, wow, you're dead already, right? I mean, you're, or at least you're going to lose the public relations um, battle. And some of these people are accustomed to not having to really fight the PR battle. And they, they, they got worked over on this occasion. Yeah. Well, and the, I mean, the, the Glazers have been fighting this for a while. Like this, this most recent protest where they, they stormed Old Trafford, this, I mean, this seemed like it was, you know, 15 years in the making, they've been doing these kind of more silent protests for a while now, um, based on kind of like the Americanization, Americanization of the club, all of that, and nothing's really worked. Like, do you see this kind of reaching a boiling point at some point? Or do you think these guys, like, you know, the Glazers, Cronk, like Stan Kroenke in particular, kind of have the, the mental and financial fortitude to just kind of withstand all of this? That, that's the fun part. Uh, and I think, again, you see the limits of um, a financial power and the limits of soft power and, and sort of emotional power. Because, And I had a really interesting conversation with a member of the Arsenal Supporters Trust when all this went down, because I wrote a piece um, actually for USSoccerBrothers.com about the American element and, and sort of tried to just take that apart a little bit. And this guy I was a, you know, a long-time Arsenal supporter, um, and the AST is this group of fans who are trying to sort of advocate for fans in general and the traditions of the club and everything. And, and he, you know, they've been sort of, there's been a simmering discontent about Kroenke um, and they feel like now is the moment to, to push for, for deeper changes. And they've got, I mean, the, 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 the club screwed it up enough to where even a conservative government in the form of the Boris Johnson regime is uh, ready to, List their meeting with fans. I mean, he's like, the <laughs> ASC was getting a face-to-face meeting with a high-ranking government minister. And he was like, how, how are we getting this meeting? Like, how are we, how is this happening? Well, that's how badly you guys screwed it up. So now we're going to push for some kind of changes. Maybe there's this concept of 50 plus one that we can get into if you guys want. Um, that's, that's famous and, and well-loved mostly in Germany in terms of sort of trying to limit the mercantile corporate ele- element of control over clubs. Um, so we may see progress in that regard. I mean, I'm a little sca- cynical because because this stuff sort of tends to flare up and the emotions of the moment, and then the, a few news cycles pass, and 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 we return to into sort of the previous inertia. But there are definitely uh, vociferous numbers of people who are pushing to to let the make make a legacy out of this. Um, and I think, um, but but again, that when you when it comes down to these, the thing that fans and a lot of the journalists have not really acknowledged that I think I, as an American, maybe I'm more aware of it, is they they made a deal with the devil to some extent. The 
the reason that there's billionaires associated with this, the reason that, that this is such a big business thing and that you have JP Morgan ready to, to try billions is that um, the, the fans want their tradition and their institutions and their reverence for, for, for the community and those, the roots of the club, but they also want to have liquidity. They want to have millions, ideally hundreds of millions of dollars ready, you know, whether it's an owner or profits or whatever to be splashed back into the club. They don't want uh, implicitly and explicitly, right. They, they want um, people who invest in the club without taking what they think is inappropriate amounts back from it. So they're trying to live in both worlds and that's, that's difficult, right? I mean, the, the, you always have to pay the piper at some point. And so I think, you know, when they're trying, if you're trying to force the Cronkies to sell and the, what's his name, the, the Spotify founder, kind of noodled around in public about how he loved Arsenal and wanted to, to lead a group to buy it and stuff. And it's like, the club is not for sale. I mean, there's a lot of people that would love to buy Man United um, or, or watch someone else buy it. <laughs> and that's the club's not for sale. The, the owners involved um, were, were asked to come in, wanted to come in, have put in, in some cases, put in money and uh, in other cases have leveraged financial control to take institutional control. And you can't force them to sell. I mean, at least we, we don't have much of a model for that. I mean, you have to make it such a nightmare for them. Right. And, and you could argue maybe the Liverpool saga um, of like, I don't know, a decade or so ago, they, they were able to sort of push out um, a, an owner, an unpopular ownership group, but really it wasn't pushing out. It was just making things as unpleasant as possible. <laughs> so you're almost stuck in that sort of um, guerrilla warfare environment where you, you know, the, the asymmetrical nature of it hit, you know, hit, your, hit your limits. And, but we'll see, maybe, maybe there's a general par- paradigm shift happening. I just haven't seen it quite yet. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> Even if there's not um, any, like the change that we're discussing, if there's like no change of ownership or no change to kind of like this economic infrastructure that is causing these issues, is there still a way to view the rise and fall of the Super League as a positive showing that like the fan base and the media and everyone can just like be so outraged to stop something like this. Um, can that be viewed as a positive? And, and as well as before you were kind of discussing the history and the legacy of these clubs. Um, and that's something, again, as not much of a soccer fan, I just heard about listening to like a, a daily episode by the New York times about it, by hearing like James Corden talk about it. Um, could that kind of familiarity of like the history and legacy of these clubs that came from this also be viewed as a positive, uh, even if we're not seeing the dramatic changes that you kind of just discussed with ownership and things like that. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that James Corden um, monologue. Cause he, I mean, he went at some length and it's kind of gone viral. I think you can get it on, you know, on YouTube or wherever um, he did a great job. And I thought using pretty prime real estate in his, you know, night nightly nationally broadcast show to plaintively emotionally lay out the fans perspective. And that's great. I mean, that, that is, that is not the entire issue, but Americans who are trying to sort of catch up to the emotional currency here, I thought he did a great job with that. Um, and I think the short answer is yes. There's already people, as I mentioned earlier, that, that, that want to, that want to leverage this moment, um, and try and capture it. Right. Um, so yes. And of course, like there's schadenfreude here too, right? I think it's okay to sort of, given how much power these rich people, these billionaires have over the, the, the world we live in, it's, there's always some perverse satisfaction in watching them absolutely faceplant, right? So that, that in and of itself is a, a learning experience for everyone. 
Uh, and, 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 but I think, I think it's kind of going to rumble on because the, when you look back at how long this concept has, has floated around in various guises and permutations, um, I mean, that it has been, it has been theorized. Um, I guess you want to say the conspiracy theory framing of this is out there that, look, these guys, this was all happening as the Champions League was debating and, and then eventually ratifying significant changes to the competitive format. And so, and one of the things that fans of smaller clubs are even find most infuriating about all this is that these clubs are already winning. Like the system already, the, in, the previous system, the existing system benefits them. Every, every whim of theirs is catered to, right? They're getting tons of money. They're hoarding talent. Um, they're hoarding the spotlight. And the new Champions League changes, it's almost like, well, is, was this a misdirection to, to obscure the fact that they got most of what they could have possibly asked for in, in the UEFA sort of, um, um, you know, process of, of, of shifting and evolving the Champions League? There's going to be, you know, more Champions League games, more concentration of big clubs in the Champions League, harder to fail out in the Champions League in the, in the earlier phases. So, so there's sort of the left-hand, right-hand thing ha- happening here too. I mean, we have to wait and see. The Swiss model is, is the shorthand that's being used about this new Champions League format. Uh, I would say it's not universally uh, loved. Um, we'll wait and see if it, you know, what it does for the product uh, and, the, and all that. And it'll, it'll take a year or two, I think, for us to sort of get a perspective on that. But, but this process of, um, and I think it mirrors our society and our world in a lot of ways off the field. Um, wealth and power is sort of trickling upward, right? I mean, it's always being concentrated in um, fewer and fewer hands at the top. The 1% or the 0.1% are um, less willing to share and, and more avaricious than ever. And that's not changing, right? And so you, you have to figure out what the game's going to look like. Are we going to be, is there going to be the sort of permanent war footing? Uh, this class conflict is going to get baked into the highest levels of soccer or um, will, will UEFA and some of these clubs and some of these supporter groups sort of uh, like, like wrench some levels of, of, um, of permanent institutional change or, or structural change? I, I just don't know. I think it's going to be, it's so big. It's so big. There's so many countries there's so many clubs there's so many people involved. Um, and there's so many different motivations. Again, like Kroenke and, and Glazer families, I think I think money is is big for them. Maybe not so the sole factor, but that's big. Whereas um, the Gulf states and some of these sort of sport watching uh, projects are just not bound by that, right? Like money isn't. Like they they're worried about about image and power, and they're looking. I mean, when you look at what Qatar is doing with the World Cup they have this 30 year plan that they started a long time ago to in their view, sort of like um, prepare themselves for the post petroleum future and make themselves relevant with the wealth they have now before the oil runs out and they're using sports to do it. And it's like, that's like, that's so big. Like how do you even get your arms around that, your brain around it, you know? Yeah. There's, there's been so much of this that is so big and it's like, this is this one thing has been such a microcosm of just like society and all the history of soccer and the history of of like European class conflicts like uh, this story for me has just been like so so fascinating in that regard that there's so many different levels to it and I mean you you know we've been talking about it a ton like we I I also want to get to some Champions League but this is like for me 
like I could, you know, this is fascinating. I love talking about this and I love hearing all these different perspectives. That's what you guys, um, I, I admire you for trying to sort of connect the two uh, worlds because that it's like whenever an American sports fan who's not immer- immersed in this asks, you're like, okay, sit down, like make a cup of coffee. We're going to break it down. We're going to start yeah. in 1992. And, and yeah. it's like, oh my God, please. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. one question, right? Yeah. And it's hard to not dive into it. Exactly. Uh, I'm probably talking way more than you guys wanted me to here, but no, it's like, no, no, this no. Is fascinating. how do you begin to like sum this up in a digestible way? It's, it's pretty, it's pretty hard. Yeah. Yeah. But, how, what, how do you cover it? I mean, I just on like a personal kind of professional level, like being someone who writes about soccer, like here we are, we're talking about like the 30 year economic outlook of Qatar. And it's like (laughs) bringing all this together. And even before we uh, started the interview, we were talking about how they're like, you know, there's always soccer games going on. There's all these different leagues. There's, you know, there's so much to unpack just with this super league instance. How have you been able to like, make sense of it all and keep up with it and be able to like write a write about it and talk about it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, well, so I'm, I'm f- very fortunate in that, I guess uh, a game I've played my whole life and, and that I consume as a, you know, as a fan and enjoy, I enjoy the, the game. So I'm lucky to be in a, in a, in a line of work where um, it's a, it's a personal passion as well as a professional tasking. Right. But there's always, there's limits. Like, there's just like, I'm, you know, um, most of my daily sort of work, like my, my main clientele is, is American soccer at the moment. So, you know, I, I cover a lot of MLS right now, the national teams, uh, I've covered the youth scene in depth in the past and you sort of have to focus like w- what your gig is, right? Like, uh, I'm, I'm a freelancer and, and if, if I've got a, cl- a site that's focused on European soccer, you know, I get to, you know, devote a certain amount of my time to that. And then I have, you know, have the other stuff here and you sort of have to compartmentalize a bit because there, again, there is so much, but I'm fortunate that I can sort of, when I, when my working day stops, I can still watch more soccer and not be tired of it, right? Because it's a passion. So, so that helps. And I think there's probably as many, or I don't know, I don't know if it's, if it's proportionally more, but I know so many people that work in this sport um, have come to it f- through that sort of um, passion perspective. And so that probably blurs our work-life balance uh, a little bit, but it, it, it does, it, you know, it makes it easier if you've been, if you're watching, you know, on the weekends f- for enjoyment, in addition to sort of the games that you're, that you're actually producing content off. Yeah, sounds like, sounds like a dream. Uh, I mean, the, the money is not uh, a dream per se. <laughs> I will say like, and this is probably a whole other episode, but like the um, soccer media in this country has grown just it's it's grown immensely since I first started I mean I was my first like eight or nine years uh in the business I was it was a a side hustle like it was a a side Mm -hmm. job for me and then eventually uh, I was able to get into somewhere around 2011 2012 I was able to get into like full-time there's enough work out there that I can make a living and 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 have and focus on it all the time and um that's great I mean we have it's not where it should be. Right. And we still have like bigger macro media issues, like, you know, us sort of media in general that make it hard, uh, too hard to have a career in this. And there, there's not enough opportunity for the individuals, but again, you know, like, so the more media is slowly, but surely opening up to it this past or this current weekend. Um, my friend, Jonathan Tannenwald, the Philadelphia Inquirer was reporting on the fact that it's the first time in known history that every major U S television network was airing a live soccer game. 
And so you think about between NWSL, MLS, um, Champions League, you know, uh, EPL, all these different, there's so much. And, uh, and there's, again, I wish we had more jobs proportionally in terms of people working that, that reflected that, but we're inching in that direction, I think. Yeah. I think a, a decent segue to uh, the Champions League final, actually, as you touched on um, at, at the beginning with the um, American matchup. Granted, uh, in my opinion, I think uh, there's one clear uh, American winner here. Like if, if Pulisic wins, if Chelsea wins, like what do you see as as the impact on American soccer being like, do you th- do you think that there's that's some kind of pivotal moment in American soccer? Do you think it's kind of a, there's a lot more that we still have to do to kind of make this. Um, and like you said, to, to kind of shift the media landscape and the way that the U S covers soccer. Yeah. I mean, you know, Christian Pulisic is um, on a personal level, like he's a, he, he I think he's a, a complicated character. He's fairly private guy. Um, he's been in the spotlight since he was a high school age kid. And um, has sort of, I think inevitably like, he has that sort of protective, I mean, he's a little reminiscent of Clint Dempsey, right? The, the one of the last great um, stars with a global name. Um, he doesn't, he keeps some part of himself private. You know, you don't always see the true him in the interviews and stuff, but, um, but he's, he has really shifted the paradigm in a way. Like you never want to put everything positive or negative on one individual shoulders, but from the time, I mean, he, you can go back to when he was about 14, I want to say. And if I, I urge you guys to go Google, like, um, and then listeners like Google Christian Pulisic PA classics or Christian Pulisic Nike friendlies. And you see this like uh, runt of a kid uh, in a, in his club or his, you know, youth national team uniform um, who just fell in love with the ball, was fortunate to be in a, in a good environment with a dad who mom and dad who had played at a high level and dad who coached and everything. Uh, and then, and he, so he is a kid who had natural talent and then, and then just kept, um, he and his family made a sequence of good decisions to keep him on this trajectory that's taken him to where he is now. And he, and again, he had, he had the benefit of a Croatian passport, right? So his, his grandfather's heritage got him the European passport that allowed him to move at 16 rather than 18, which may not seem like a lot, but is a really crucial developmental window. Um, he picked, they, they picked the right club. Um, to go and work at in Borussia Dortmund. He even like his dad relocated with him at first and his cousin, uh, Will, who's also a professional, um, you know, they made it, they made some smart moves and then had things really pay off. And again, Christian himself is this uh, in the shorthand of like, you know, uh, elite European soccer. He's a killer, man. He's just, he, he has a, he has the quality. He has the mentality. He's been so driven since he was 13, 14. Um, He's been in, put in environments that continually tested him and forced him. And, and he's made choices, right? He left at the right time. Um, he broke through at Dortmund and then kept pushing. And, uh, and he's been in the spotlight. And so he, he, he doesn't seem phased by, by pressure and that kind of thing. I mean, he's been challenged with his, his muscular injuries, his hamstrings and that sort of thing. Um, but he was a pioneer. He cr- created this pathway and showed that it was possible for Americans to climb to levels and at a, at a trajectory that really nobody had done. And at least even if you say not nobody, he wasn't the first to, to reach some of those levels, but for his to do it at his age and in a way that his generation and those that followed after him, like he's the Pied Piper. And you see now there's more Americans all moving over all the time, climbing into big clubs, climbing into significant minutes and roles of big clubs. I mean, the number of Americans at Bayern right now is just wild. I mean, this is, 
you know, Americans were sort of journeymen that would catch on in maybe the, the lower end of the Bundesliga, right? And now there, there's clubs, big clubs ready to pay seven, eight figures for Americans who are still relatively unproven. I mean, Brian Reynolds is another one that I think we'll look back on in the future as a, a watershed. Um, so I think it's, you know, and Pulisic is, um, again, he doesn't show himself. So, so maybe um, as, much, as much as we would love to know more about him, he's still, and it's such an inspiration for people and he just keeps doing it. I mean, to, to do what he did in the Champions League semifinals and to have, I remember when he moved to Chelsea, he didn't play much. And there was all this talk about whether it was a mistake, would he have to go out on loan? Has he, has he you know, hit a cul-de-sac in his career? And then again, this year, new coach, you know, did he make a mistake? Does Tuchel have it out for him? Um, you know, where's Christian heading? And then to like, just grab, just, just kill it and, and be a match winning personality in the Champions League semifinal. Like we just haven't seen that before for an American player. Yeah. Yeah. On, on this hopeful note for American soccer, <laughs> can we get uh, just one prediction for the final? And do you think Pulisic will score over under three and a half goals? <laughs> the, the hard part, I, I, I kind of hate this because I don't even know if he's going to start. Right. And, and that's, again, like I, I can't overestimate this, man. Chelsea is just packed with talent. I mean, there's, there's two elite starting 11s on that roster, maybe more. I mean, there's, there's, it's just a dogfight to get on the match day roster, much less to get in the 11 um, to maintain yourself at, a, at the physical level, to be fit for that and available for that. It's just, it is such a dogfight, and um, uh, I, I really don't know. I mean, that's that is the storybook outlet, you know, uh, uh, outcome for um, from an American perspective, I guess. Um, I certainly hope so. Um, I think that he, the form he's in right now, and we do have a little bit of a lag to the final, which can affect things a bit. Um, but the, the the fact that they'll I should be able to focus entirely on that game, and um, you know, I I think. I would think that he'll start based on what he's shown so far. I mean, the manager is um, Thomas Tuchel is, is a very intelligent, cerebral guy. There's this German term that the German word escapes me, but they have this, this concept of laptop coaches. They've had this kind of generation of young Turks who got into coaching earlier in their, in their twenties and thirties instead of forties and fifties. And who are, who are um, sort of adding uh, like, I guess, synthesizing um, high level periodization, like performance analysis, big data, like this is like the, the intelligence there. Uh, you never know what he's going to come up with. Right. And some of his tactical tweaks have been really decisive in some of these games up to now. Um, so I'm expecting the unexpected. Um, but I think Pulisic has put himself in that situation and that's all that any player on earth um, can ever ask for in this moment, you know, to be in the mix to get that opportunity. I think he'll play. I don't know if he'll start. And we see now he doesn't need that much time. He can be an impact player off the bench too. So it's funny you talk about Tuchel. Do you think, um, and you mentioned his his intelligence. So do you think he, I mean, do you see him as being like what took Chelsea to the next level? Or do you see Frank, Frank Lampard as just being not a good manager? It's funny that you, you bring that up because I guess in the context that we've been uh, we've established here with this sort of uh, transitional state of, of European soccer, right? Um, Lampard is in a lot of ways, he's the romantic choice. He's a club legend, um, you know, long, you know, just an icon, right? And um, that inevitably 
affected the way that the fans and the, and the club decision makers saw him. He got that job too soon. I mean, it was, for me, it was obvious at the time that he hadn't spent enough time in top level uh, management that as you can do, you can literally do it all, which he just about did as a player. And you're still starting from scratch as a manager, it's still a different line of work. We obscure that, right? I mean, we lose sight of that all the time. We see that in other sports, this idea that there's someone who's a special kind of personality or special leader or is able to sort of skip steps. And, and the people that, even people that have been through there that, that I've interviewed, they, it's hard to skip steps. It's very rare. Zinedine Zidane is maybe the exception that proves the rule in that sense of someone who can, who can move so, slow, so swiftly from elite level player to elite level manager. So I think you, you have to say that, you know, Lampard wasn't ready for that job. It wasn't fair to put him in that position. I understand him not being able to resist, but, um, but he had, he had, he has more work to do. He has more seasoning to, to gain uh, in the, in the, that sort of sphere. And so Tuchel was the right, and I, again, managers don't last at Chelsea, right? He could be, uh, could, could get canned in a matter of months. Um, but he was the right personality with the right ideas at the right time to get their, their season, um, turned in the right direction. And again, like the, the rhythms of the season are such that, especially in champions league, it's like the, you survive the group stage to get to the knockout round and then you can come alive. And Madrid did that a lot, uh, over in you know, the last decade. And I think we saw Chelsea kind of do something like that. All that floundering of the fall, um, can be, you know, it's harder to get over that in a league setting. But in a knockout tournament, it's just prologue, and mm-hmm. and here they are. Yeah. Um, sorry, don't really even say anything. No, 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 go for it. No, I was just gonna, you know, we're running pretty long here. Uh, I'm gonna pull for Chelsea. So I want to see Paul say I, to answer <laughs> my own question. I'm gonna say four goals for Paul <laughs> Wow, <laughs> over, over a hat trick. Yeah. No, oh, thank it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, but this was awesome. Um, this is a, just a fascinating, fascinating interview. We really appreciate you taking the time. We'll let you get back to your Mother's Day here. Um, <laughs> but you can read Charles's work on MLSsoccer.com. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at CBoehm. That's B-O-E-H-M. Do you have anything else to, to plug before we wrap up? I think that's it, guys. Thanks so much for that. Um, Twitter is usually where my work gets dropped first. Um, and then, you know, Whoever's listening out there, hit me up anytime on there. That's a good place to get the conversation started. Awesome. Yep. Sounds good. Really appreciate the time. Yeah, thank you. Breaking news. We have an important PSA for you. Brought to you by Manscaped.com. That's right, folks. This is your PSA, pubic service announcement. And it's the news that you've all been waiting for. The Manscaped engineering team has confirmed to us that they have successfully created the Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, which is now available for purchase in the USA and Canada. The trimmer, the new trimmer was just released only moments ago, and we're the first to get our hands on it. We're breaking news. This is fucking crazy. I, I, when I got this news, I'm not kidding. When I got the email that this was happening, I shit my pants. Yeah. yeah. I lost my mind. The 4.0 is here. It's waterproof. Uh, it has wireless charging. 
capabilities. I didn't know that you could make something better than the lawnmower 3.0. Uh, and gosh darn it, they did it. So get your hands on one. Go to manscaped.com. Use promo code MEAT at checkout. M-E-A-T. Uh, to get 20% off and world free worldwide shipping, uh, get the lawnmower 4.0. It's the, it's the Tesla of ball shavers, they say. It's the Doge. It's the Doge of trimmers. I call upon all nations to do everything they can to stop these terrorist killers. Now watch this drive. It's now time for some ice cold takes. Uh, it's been a pretty busy sports weekend, so we have some pretty good sports takes and some non-sports related takes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I guess I'll start us off. I have three, you have two, so a little mental math, some mental think, gymnastics. Yeah. I should go yeah. first. You go first, yeah. Uh, speaking of mental gymnastics, my first ice-cold take, and this is something I truly believe at this point. I woke up this morning like 100% believing this. I could quit my job today and tomorrow take a job as a quant at Goldman Sachs, a mm-hmm. quantitative analyst. Yeah, yeah. Because um, I'm a fucking wizard. I was trading. I was trading Dogecoin back and forth drunkenly throughout the last three days, like a genius. I was like watching the. I was like watching the charts. You know, I was like Zach Galifianakis in Hangover with like the numbers running across my head. I timed uh-huh. it perfectly every time. I bought low, sold high, drunkenly, accidentally. No, 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 dude. You buy, you buy high. Oh fuck. Yeah, dude. <laughs> That's brutal. You buy high, sell low. I accidentally, drunkenly sold all of my Doge. I had a lot of Doge on Friday. Uh, that was a smart move. And woke up Saturday, and it was down. But then, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I the uh, the like. Where, where it like fell off a cliff the second that snl started is like the funniest thing that i've ever seen yeah because he called it a hustle yeah <laughs> and then just yeah do you know what i was like this weekend mm-hmm. i was like uh brad pitt in the big short when he's in the like english pub he's like 80 million 90 million <laughs> 70 70 million, 70 million. I was just, I was just at, I was just like four Miller lights deep yesterday morning. Like, bye, bye, bye. <laughs> Way less quantities, but yeah. quantities. That was a nice, nice cool take. Dude. Nice, nice. All right. Well, uh, so we'll call up Goldman. I'd, I'd say we should just start our own firm. Dude, I've been thinking the exact out, same thing. Dude, cut out the middleman. I don't Do know why s- we have to work for Goldman. We we set up our own little day trading fund. All we these Bloomberg terminal, and we just pull arbitrage all day. Let's do it. I see these fuckers on Twitter all the time that like either have like their e-commerce businesses or just day traders, and I can't tell if they're like all fake or they're just the only ones that haven't lost all their money yet. But they totally convince me. I'm like, that's what I need to do. I should just be a day trader. Like I can. Dude, we could totally do that. We could totally do that. And dude, it just just the day, dude. We only have to work when the markets open and close. The rest of the time, we're free. Yeah. You know, meat, meat stonks alcohol. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I like that. Uh, cool. Uh, my first ice cold take uh, of the week is uh, baseball related, actually. And I know you have a couple baseball ones, too. But it's just that uh, baseball is cool. I think baseball's back. And I feel like people are all arguing about how baseball's dead and it's not 
needs to be fixed and all this stuff. Last night, there was Nuggets, Nets, and Braves, Phillies uh, in the eighth and Nuggets, Nets at halftime. And I chose to watch Braves, Phillies, and it was awesome. It was an insanely cool baseball game. Went to 12, 8-7, walk off by the Braves. I, I think baseball's back. Baseball timed this season and being cool with the vaccine and being able to go outside so well. I know they didn't actually time anything. That's just when the season starts. (laughs) But I think it was all wrong, dude. Oh, he's just genius. All this, like three D chess. Yeah, four D chess. Yeah, three D is normal chess. I think you're really onto something that I spent a day working at my parents' home this week and I just put on like ESPN, like afternoon ESPN and uh, watched them like PTI and stuff. First of all, Woody Page is still alive as, as is Tony Kornheiser, which is unbelievable. Uh, And they were both like everyone on ESPN was like, baseball is dead. There's too many no hitters, all this stuff. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, it's actually pretty sick now. Yeah. And there's so many, there's so many sick guys. Like Tatis is so sick. Like Acuna Jr. is so sick. Like there's so many sick personalities. And like at dingers. Yeah. And wear like 20 chains. Yeah. They're they're all sick. (laughs) Like there's way too many Mike Trouts before. And like, you need cool guys that are fun. And there's a lot of those. And yeah. who cares if the league batting average is like 200? Yeah, as long as they're hitting dingers. Yeah, exactly. That's all I care about. That's all I care about. And the Yankees doing well. That's really my main concern. But yeah. yeah. Speaking of baseball, that brings me to my next ice cold take. Uh, did you see, I don't know if you saw this, Kendrick Perkins said on ESPN somewhere that it was harder to win a championship in basketball than football. I did see that, yes. And every retired football player lost their asses about it. They're like, you have no idea. Here's my cold take. Harder to win in baseball. Fuck basketball and football. First of all, baseball is so boring and people still don't really give a shit. But it's back, though. It's back. It's back. (laughs) (laughs) But as having to play 162 games just standing out there. Yeah. Like not really doing anything half the time. Just out of yeah. boredom, I'm saying it's more difficult than football I'd, or basketball. I'd say the yeah, the mental fortitude to be like it's like it, you know, you're playing the Royals in the middle of July. It's a hundred degrees and muggy. You're in Kansas City. You play left field, and you know you just have to stand out in the sun for three hours and occasionally just run around and catch something. I that's brutal. It takes less mental fortitude to be like rah-rah with the boys. We're going to go smash helmets. Yeah. And it is, I'm going to go just, stand out in 105 degree weather. Yeah. And just stand there. And as I'm getting heckled there. by fans yeah. in some shitty place like Cleveland yeah. or something. Yeah. Cleveland. Yeah. Oh, Kansas City. What other yeah. shitty baseball Cincinnati. towns are there? Oh, yeah. Yep. Totally. Yeah. No, I think that's a good one. I think that's a good one. Well, you actually, this, let's i'd say you have another baseball related one so you want to go back to back yeah i'll go yeah let's stay on the baseball train this is more baseball talk than we've had in the first 15 episodes of this podcast i like it dude because baseball is back it's back and it's hard to win uh my next ice cold take i'm just gonna be ageist here old coaches across the board 
are too old. There's too many old farts that are just have these jobs and fucking suck at it. Tony Larissa, I know you saw. I didn't, God damn it. Didn't know the rule in extra innings where you could put a runner on second, what starting in the 11th inning. 12. No, it said he put Liam Hendricks on second. I know he put his pitcher. You could put yeah. a position player. You could put a position player. And he was like, Ooh. dude, did you see the interview after the game too? It was yeah. like the saddest thing I've ever seen. He admitted it. He was just like, was like yeah, I didn't, I didn't know. know the rule. No, there's a lot time. of new things going on. Yeah. I didn't. Yeah. Is it because you're 98 years old? Like, I know. You should, if you can't drive a car, you shouldn't be coaching a professional sports team. Well, Tony Larusa can't drive a car for other reasons. I didn't know this. DUI related. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, he's got he's a couple of those issues. Yeah. That worked on a couple. You of didn't see the DUI last year? It was no. like right after we hired them. Also, I feel like context setting. It's confusing that I'm fans of all these random teams, but I'm from Montana. So I picked them when I was like eight. I'm a White Sox fan. Um, and we picked we uh, hired him. And then like a day later, the report came out about how he got a DUI. And he tried to get out of it by like flashing his World Series rings. And being like, you know who I am. Like, what a baller move. Yeah, Holy yeah. shit. Yeah. And that wouldn't be his first DUI. Anyways, he's I way bet. too old. He's a dinosaur. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah. I also feel like these guys, especially when they're out of a league and come back, even if they are not that much older, they feel so much older. Like my other example that I have here is Stan Van Gundy. Yeah. He, I, I don't know how old he actually is. But he might as well be 115 years old. Yeah. Uh, first of all, because he sucks at coaching the Pelicans. I lost money twice in a row on them. They, they're all fucking idiots. Um, and he also doesn't seem like he knows what's going on in basketball. Yeah. I feel like baseball would be the hardest one. Like you leave in 2011 and it's just all like classic baseball stuff. And then you come back and it's just like, what the, f- why do we shift on every play? There's four outfielders right now. What's going on? Like, wait, why are why are there so many strikeouts? It's What's like a, happening? A million metrics. Like, yeah, you know, exactly. Right I don't even. What is OPS? Someone, please tell me. Like, Dude, <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, there's a million of those. Like the yeah. implied probability of. <laughs> Tony Larusa can't follow any of that. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good take. Um, last. Last ice cold take of the week, my ice cold take of the week, uh, not baseball related, is that I should have waited longer to get the vaccine. I should have held out a little bit. Um, I got it early on. T- I got it as soon as possible because I was like, this is sick. I want to do normal stuff again. But now that like all the people that wanted to get the vaccine have gotten it and now they're trying to get like the people on the fence they're doing all this cool stuff for people to get vaccines. They're like giving out, you know, you go to the bar and get a vaccine, you get a free drink, or they like give out tickets to baseball games. They're giving out like Super Bowl tickets to anyone that gets the vaccine. Now it's like, I really should have played harder to get. I, you know, I should have been more of a commodity. I just like, I just gave myself up first, first come first serve. And, and, and now there's all this cool stuff that I could have gotten. That is a really smart take. I yeah. guess you, you, you could still do it. Not, I, I mean, just, you could say that, like, you know, you already got the vaccine, but you could now be like, I don't know. Yeah. Should I? Yeah. <laughs> just pretend like you haven't already gotten it. Yeah. Okay. That's again. I could, you know, how all these people are like faking vaccine cards to like do stuff. People are doing that. Yeah. Of course, people are doing that. It's like a tiny little card 
like made in Microsoft Word. I'm not fucking around. As we started talking about this, I was looking at my desk. I think I may have lost my vaccine card. I'm yeah. pretty sure it was like in this in this thing. And uh, that's a good place it. to put it. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I could have just faked not I could have made a, a counterfeit blank vaccine card and been like, look, I didn't <laughs> I don't have anything. Yeah, with like no signature on it. Or yeah, like it's like look, I didn't get it. Yeah, nobody's written on this card. Yeah. I, I got my haircut yesterday. Uh thank you for not noticing. <laughs> and my the person cutting my hair like was trying to start an argument with me because she was against oh, getting the vaccine that's a very georgia thing yeah yeah she, she was just like you know i know she just like kept talking about it and i wasn't responding it's like kind of one of those things where you start arguing she was just arguing with yourself. me and i wasn't saying yeah. anything back yeah. uh and i was like holy shit that is so lame just get the vax and go party did you, did you tell her that she could win super bowl tickets if she got the vax god damn it i did you should have told her that yeah you should have told her that um my hair my i got my hair cut a week ago oh it looks good yeah thanks um and my hairdresser she said uh when she got the second one she was like she was like i don't know why all these people are getting sick i just got pfizer hammered like 10 white claws and fell asleep and i woke up feeling great the next morning Dude, so I think I, she found the cure to the, the vaccine hangover. I actually heard like something incredibly similar to that with someone I with someone who I work with, uh, who was saying, like, oh, she was talking about the opposite though. She was like, I felt so shitty all weekend. Like I could not get out of bed. And she was like, Well, I also went to a country concert on Friday and had 15 margaritas. And I'm like, <laughs> Oh, well, how do you know? Probably, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, last thing before we wrap up, ice cold takes. Last week, you kind of surprised me with a segment. Uh-oh. You caught me off guard and asked me <laughs> some soccer questions, yeah. and I wasn't prepared at all. So mm-hmm. I'm going to get you back here. Okay. I have a segment idea. I don't know if okay. you've heard about this. Uh, it's pretty big news this week that Laurel Hubbard, uh, she's the first transgender person to compete in the Olympics as a weightlifter. She you know, used to compete as a man. Now she's a woman and she's going to be competing against a woman. I was just wondering how, you know, what your take was on that, whether you think that's, you know. Well, I think that certainly uh, it's good for the New Zealand weightlifting team uh, and the <laughs> greater community of New Zealand. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Because, Right? Yeah. <laughs> uh. I mean good uh yeah good um that's good awesome that was our ice cold takes of the week and yeah weightlifting talk yeah Dude, i gotta work in my car to knees and that was our show next week we'll be doing some nba playoff preview and probably talking about some other stuff too so you're definitely going to want to stick in to tune in tune in for that Stick in, stick in for that. Uh, yeah. I will not be talking any nets. I am accepting no questions and refuse to talk about the Brooklyn Nets. Every sports team from New York sucks, except for the Knicks. Except for the Knicks. And deserves, deserves to lose, uh, including the Nets. But we'll give you some all the info you need to get you ready for the playoffs and some hot takes. Uh, yeah. 
Follow us on social media at MeSportsAlk. Share with your friends on Twitter. Go buy a lawnmower 4.0 using promo code MEAT. Uh, we'll see you next week. All right, fam. Peace. Peace and love. Today is going to be the day that they're going to throw it back to you. By now, you should have somehow realized what you got to do. I don't believe that anybody feels the way I do about you now. Because maybe...